Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. Welcome back to A House on Fire, a podcast series exploring the book A House on Fire, How Adventist Faith Responds to Race and Racism. My name's Nathan Brown. I'm a co-editor of the book and one of the hosts of this podcast. And thank you to Adventist Peace Radio and Adventist Voices for their distribution of this uh, special series where we explore the book and have conversations with a number of the contributors. Joining me today on this episode of A House on Fire is Yishen Ma. He's Associate Professor of Ethics at Loma Linda University. Yishen, thank you for joining us. Very happy to be here. Let's begin with a little bit about your background. How does one become an Associate Professor of Ethics? I'm actually an assistant professor of ethics uh, here at Loma Linda. Uh, I started about, it's okay, uh, you promoted me, so yeah, I'm, I'm expecting my paycheck to look differently in a, yeah. in a few days. Good, good. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, so I uh, I started here about five years ago as a full-time faculty in the School of Religion. Uh, and before that, I kind of taught uh, on and off uh, on a contract basis in Loma Linda, as well as last year at university. Uh, while I was pastoring uh, a congregation out in LA. And during that time, I was finishing up my uh, doctorate degree uh, at Claremont School of Theology. Mm -hmm. And uh, after a couple of years of teaching as an adjunct professor, uh, I was happy to accept the appointment um, mm. here at Loma Linda. That's how I came here. Yeah. Mm. That's cool. It's a fascinating thing that for... And I know in the circles you work, it's not so unusual. But in the cir circles in which I work in the church context, that ethics seems somewhat obscure and something that we probably don't. It's not a top of the mind kind of thing, even though it is really close to what we do. Um, so, what what is the study of ethics in this kind of context? And I guess particularly, you have a special focus working in a healthcare kind of institution. Give us that kind of background of the discussion of ethics and what it actually brings in. Yeah, so ethics, as you said, is it's not really a well-known discipline within the Adventist community, right? Uh, mm. you, a lot of people probably don't know that we have, uh, unless you're in a healthcare setting, that um, I'm also the co-director of the Center for Christian Bioethics here at Loma Linda University. Mm. So, uh, you know, what ethicists do is that it's an interdisciplinary uh, field where we look at uh, contemporary pressing moral questions, right, such as uh, issues related uh, to the book that we're talking about here, racism, mm. right, uh, healthcare equity issues, uh, issues related to some, uh, you know, controversial issues uh, in our healthcare settings such as abortion of end of life, a physician assisted uh, death and so on. Mm. Uh, so we look at these uh, questions that are raised by our, by our culture and our society. And we look at them critically to tease out what are the moral issues? What are the values that are at stake in these issues? And what are, and then try to look at our own institutional values, such as 
living here in Loma Linda, working here at Loma Linda University, the guiding principle here is to continue the teaching and healing ministry of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Now, if we take uh, this person, Jesus, seriously, uh, certainly has uh, implications in terms of how we live as people. And if one identifies as a Christian or an Adventist, right, there is a need to think deeply about what that means in terms of how we live our lives, not only as individuals, right, but also collectively as a community. Mm-hmm. So ethics really looks at all of those questions, not only what is the right thing for me to do, what's right or what's wrong, what are my duties as a person, as a citizen, as a father, uh, as a husband, as a pastor, what is, whatever, whatever it is that your, uh, your role is, right? Not only that, but also... As a community, how do we relate to each other so that we can enhance our collective flourishing as well as the common good? So these are some of the questions that uh, an ethicist might uh, examine in mm. their professional work. Yeah. Mm. So it might sound like the setup for a joke, but you know, if you were saying, what's the difference between a theologian and an ethicist? Is it simply that uh, it's you know it's the application? In a practical, you know, in practical lives kind of settings. Yeah, so you know there is this debate uh, in Christian ethics circles, like in, in Christian academia. Is there such a thing as a Christian ethic? Right? Is, mm-hmm. is there a ethic that is distinctly Christian? Some people say yes uh, because of Revelation, because of Jesus. There is a particular way that we think about moral questions that are not necessarily available or sources that are available to other people who are who don't identify with the tradition right mm. but there are also those who say that no there's actually a universal uh, common ethic that we all have access to by virtue of our reason our ability to think and to think critically about our, our uh, lived experience right so there's a question about you know what is it that makes christian first of all cr- uh, ethics christian right but also, is there something called ethics that is distinct from other fields of inquiry, such as theology, mm. as a example you brought up? Personally, I think theology and ethics are closely connected, right? So if you are, a, in my view, if you're a good theologian, you're always thinking about, uh, you know, if we believe in certain things, right, such as uh the death and resurrection of Jesus. Mm. Uh, what does that have? What implications does that uh, belief have for how we live our lives? What does it mean for us to confess faith in a person who grew up in a working class, marginal part of you know ancient world uh, uh, was persecuted by the powers that be mm. in order to speak truth to power? If we claim such a person to be the sources of the inspiration of how we live our lives, then definitely there's going to be certain moral and ethical implications, right? Mm. And so I think that uh, a theologian always, no matter if you're doing systematic theology, right, the, the examination of Christian beliefs, or you're a biblical theologian, you're, you're, you're a Bible scholar, you're looking at uh, the New Testament or the Hebrew Bible in their original language and, and social historical context, you're always thinking about how can we apply our findings in the contemporary world. And in, insofar as you're doing that, I would say you're doing something like ethics. Mm. And so it doesn't really matter what discipline you come from. Some of us who are trained specifically in ethics may also uh, come to the table with certain training that are 
distinct. That is distinct from, say, a biblical theologian. Like, for instance, we don't emphasize as much in terms of learning Greek or Hebrew, mm-hmm. you know, and things like that. Um, our focus is on bringing our theological material, our beliefs, into dialogue with philosophies uh, that are, uh, you know, important uh, in our uh, culture and our experience. For instance, we will study. Uh, just to throw out an example, the the philosophy of Immanuel Kant, right? How he thinks about ethical questions, mm-hmm. uh, deontolo- deontologically, or the utilitarian tradition, John Stuart Mill, and things like that, yeah. uh, or political theorists like John Rawls, right? Uh, who thinks about very deeply about what does it mean for us to be a just and fair society. Mm-hmm. So we would have uh, training that brings us into conversation with sources that are uh, related uh, to political philosophy, and philosophical ethics. And that is the contribution we bring to the table. Yeah, so in that way, it's a it's a broader discipline, perhaps, in that you bring together a lot of different ideas and, um, yeah, try and work out ultimately how to live, how to, the, as you mentioned earlier, that idea of how can we work together towards human flourishing in that best best kind of way. Yeah, exactly. So um, in your, and I don't know if it was such a significant moment for you that you have a clear memory of receiving an invitation to respond to a book on ad- how Adventist faith can contribute to the, the work of anti-racism in the world. And um, But fr- I guess from an ethicist perspective, what is it that catches your attention about an invitation like that? Yeah, so, you know, one takes different approaches to thinking about ethical questions. So when I when I was first uh, made aware of this book project uh, on the House of, on Fire, uh, I, was, I wasn't exactly sure how I would approach the question, mm-hmm. right? So because, uh, you know, one, one way to go about it is to talk about why racism is wrong, try to define what racism is first and foremost, right? And then maybe mine the Christian resources to figure out why it's incompatible with the Christian tradition, broadly speaking, mm. right, in terms of uh, what are what we believe about the gospel, what it says about how we should live together with uh, people of different cultures, ethnicities, and race, and mm. so on and so forth, right? But I thought that would be kind of uh, not as interesting because a lot of people have already take racism to be wrong mm. in a lot of ways. So the question is never, you know, is rarely, if ever, uh, whether racism is wrong. But I think there is sort of a, a vacuum in terms of our society in our discourse about race. Something that I've noticed is that we tend not to think about race and racism historically, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, especially here in the United States, we are largely ahistorical people, right? In mm-hmm. the sense that we are, our, our attention is uh, focused on the future, right? About mm-hmm. what's new, what's next. Um, and so we don't always think about how the way our, our cultural moment, right? The, the reality within which we are situated is informed by and shaped by a very long history that is outside of our control. And that history has something important to say about how we respond to race and racism as a Christian community. Mm. And so that is the approach I've decided to, to take, is to provide maybe a, a zooming out a little bit from the uh, purely American context yeah. 
yeah. and then situating that uh, the story of race and racism within the larger story of colonialism. Mm, yeah, and that I I mean I really appreciated the approach you took in your chapter, simply because that is the way I came at my, the study that I've done in race over the past five or ten years is. And I've been very much shaped by uh, Willie James Jennings' book, The Christian Imagination, which is the, a similar survey to the, you know, in my full book length uh, of the work that you've done here of the five or six hundred year history of colonization that brings us to the historical and theological underpinnings of racism as we know it in the modern world. Right, uh, right. So your chapter particularly resonated with where I was coming from and so I appreciate the work that you did in just setting that out in a in a chapter length format, <laughs> because, <laughs> yeah. because it's a really big to- topic to take. You know, six hundred years of world history, the theology, right. the philosophy, the practice of it over that time. Right. Yeah. Given the task of trying to say something meaningful about this in a relatively short space, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Where did you begin? Uh, what was the approach that you took with it? Yeah, so as you said, that this is a, a huge chunk of history, and so you know one can get bogged down uh, with the details, right? So mm. I think the the approach that I took is try to learn from that history and try to distill certain lessons that we might uh, learn from that history into a, into sort of a a number of principles that we can look at. Uh, that are still informing how we talk about race and racism in our society today. Mm. And so I kind of, I began the book, uh, my chapter, uh, by talking about how, kind of just asking the question, is it even important for us to look at the history of race and racism, right? Um, Mm. And a lot of people might say, no, it's not important. It's important to think about how we might move forward, given the reality of racism. Uh, But I think there is a lot of value in looking at some of the historical lessons precisely because uh, in the chapter I argue there's a a close relate, a disturbingly close relationship between history of Christianity uh, and the history of racism. Mm. And that closely related history is not often talked about. Right. Mm. And so I think the, the liability of not having that discussion Right. To whatever extent my narrative uh, is is truthful and accurate, not having that conversation puts us in a place where we might uh, continue to practice our faith and to uh, affirm certain assumptions about our faith that may be perpetuating something like racism in our own communities and in our practice. And so, knowing learning something about that history of colonialism. Uh, and how race as a category is constructed in history help us to uh, move forward by not um, making the same mistakes when we try to resource our own traditions to fight against racism moving forward. Uh, the, The liability then is that we too quickly move from the problem to the solution Right, mm-hmm. without really thinking very carefully about what is it in our traditions that we affirm uh, that is still uh, intertwined with that history and may produce problematic results if we don't address them. Mm. And of course, in this context, you also bring in a reading of Revelation that maybe 
familiar but also unfamiliar um, because you, I guess partly because you apply this, apply it to this particular reading of history, it also gives a different reading of, you know, the beast in Re- of Revelation 13 that you reference. Right. And it, I guess many would recognize that in doing this, you're undertaking a, what we would at least see as an Adventist project. Yeah. So how does Revelation interact with, you know, in your thinking, how does this these two things interact? Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I begin the chapter by delving a little bit into the history of colonialism, mm. uh, starting in the 16th century, and show how European Christians uh, constructed categories based on their understanding of uh, Christianity and theology, right? Drawing from precursors in the history of Christianity to basically construct uh, a, a kind of geopolitics based on a racial ethnic hierarchy, right? Where you know European Christians occupy the pinnacle of civilization and culture, right? And so everybody else is then framed uh, as either. Uh, kind of heretics to be conquered or problems to be solved or uh, people who needs to be taught the truth, right? Mm. And so there is a framing of the different people, indigenous peoples in the world uh, from the very get-go of colonialism where Christian theologians and uh, intellectuals were actively constructing theological categories that would then rationalize and justify European colonialism. And that and those categories sort of are the precursors of the racial hierarchy that we know about, say, in the United States, right? Mm. So, so these categories that they constructed uh, kind of put, objectifies people, right? And denies people uh, their voice, right? As well as their own histories, and so when we learn about history in schools, uh, in say in the U.S., the history that we learn about comes from a very particular standpoint, a particular uh, uh, perspective. And that perspective is often not reflected uh, by the, 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 the perspective that has been erased as a result of that colonial history, the perspective of indigenous peoples, uh, mm. the, indig- the, the, the perspective of African Americans who have been displaced as a result of the slave trade, and so all of those uh, categories then have. Uh, I, so I, what I talk about in the chapter is what I uh, learned from studying Anibal Quijano, who is a sociologist, and uh, Walter Manolo, who is a semiotician, uh, as mm. well as a, a post-colonial uh, theorist, and he and together they developed this idea of the coloniality of power. And Minello calls it a colonial matrix of power. Basically, the matrix, I think, is a really helpful framework to see how the different pieces of, uh, of what undergirds colonialism comes together to create this giant project of empire, mm. which, are, which are then morphed and cha- transformed into different shapes throughout history. Yeah. And then to show that very much a lot of that logic still remains with us in the way that we practice Christianity today. Mm-hmm. So when I bring in Revelation, I was trying to uh, show that there's a lot of similar features between the colonial matrix of power, which is uh, the ideological framework that puts people in a ethno-racial hierarchy, right? 
there are these institutions that produces that not scientific, quote unquote, scientific knowledge of of humanity, anthropology, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there are uh, economic uh, incentives behind that in terms of Europe moving from a kind of uh, agrarian uh, economy of subsistence into early industrialized or capitalist, early capitalist economy, mm. uh, creating this certain need for raw material and labor and so on and so forth. So there's an economic incentive to objectify people of other races and ethnicities so that they could be exploited uh, in the economic system mm. uh, that was benefiting Europeans, right? Europe. So, so all of that comes together I think in, a, in my analysis of Revelation, which is kind of a reading of Revelation 13 and talking about the beast of Revelation 13 as embodying the logic of uh, the colonial matrix of power. And then maybe rereading Revelation as a story of protest against those kinds of illegitimate authorities and powers. First of all, revealing those things as what they are right which is the the word apocalypse uh comes from the word uh, the, the, one of the definitions is unveiling or revealing mm. right and one of the things revelation unveils is the parodies of god's uh power and love in the form of these global empires that seeks to dominate other people through linguistic militaristic economic and cultural mastery right mm-hmm. And so, so a lot of times, the reason why I bring that into the analysis is because a lot of times, and, and I know this, you know, as a as a someone who's been in Adventist, uh, as a convert to Adventism, as well as someone who has been in the Adventist community for for a while as a convert, right? Mm. Which is that we oftentimes read Revelation as revealing like an enemy that we can point to, like say Papal Rome or something like that. Yeah. Um, and but once we do that, we neglect other ways beastly powers can also manifest, mm-hmm. right? And so then our prophet we we undercut our prophetic critique of the world around us, our ability to reflect critically and to speak truth to power by narrowing our interpretation to say that revelation can only mean X or mm-hmm. mean Y, and then we don't really see what the logic of empire behind all of that is. And so we're not able to identify uh, empire logic within our own institutions, within our own churches, within our own nations, right? So which is why I bring in the analysis of Revelation 13 there. Mm, Yeah. Yeah, there's some big ideas in what you've given us the very brief overview of there. Yeah. Uh, So one of the things that struck me was your comment about Revelation actually being a a narrative of liberation. And and I think we can see how you've got to that point with what you've touched on, but can you expand on that a little bit more? How could we read Revelation in a way that is more liberative in that sense? Yeah, so so one one way, I think the first step is to recognize where how things can go wrong in our yeah. own reading of Revelation, right? So one way that things can go wrong is to read Revelation as a Christian triumphalist narrative. Mm-hmm. And I think that if we read it that way, right, we Adventists or Christians, whatever it is, are the good guys of history, right? <laughs> we know the Surprisingly. truth, right? <laughs> right. We are, we are God's people, mm. right? 
And so then we project all the negative traits of empire on other people, right? Uh, so the enemies of God are over there somewhere. They're either over there or there are people who are just lost and they're in need of an injection of truth from us, right? Mm. So if we read Revelation as a kind of triumphalistic narrative about how our community is better than other people, right? Yeah. We, we, have, we risk then recreating the colonial matrix of power by lifting up our own particularities, uh, the way that we practice our faith, our language, our own culture. Um, even though it's a great culture, you know, we love haystacks, at least here in the United States, right? <laughs> that, but we're really saying that this is the epitome of what civilization uh, or look like, right? Or we are God's people. And so other people are just objects of conversion, evangelization. Mm. Um, so we, we end up reproducing the logic of colonialism. Mm. Uh, and that's not liberatory at all because it can lead to the oppression of the others in our community who don't fit into that narrative or people yeah. that we conceive to be have less truth than we have. So, so by avoiding that, I think we set the stage uh, of a more liberatory reading of Revelation. And we read it not so much as we are the good guys and the bad guys are out there, but as a critique that, no, the bad guys are can be within, can be in our community, can be in myself, mm. in terms of how I can reproduce the colonial matrix of power in the way that I carry myself in my own communities, in the way that I shut down other voices because it makes me feel uncomfortable, in the way that uh, I deny uh, kind of needed assistance or or fail to support policies that would actually make a difference in the lives of vulnerable populations in our own communities, mm. all because we think we are the righteous ones and we are deserving and other people don't. And so the liberatory reading must get away from that and read it as a self-critique. Revelation is saying that God invites us into an alternative way of being in the world. Mm. And that alternative way of being is founded on a dedication to uh, a love, which is to me dedication to the well-being of others, as well as a community that is structured around the value of servanthood, right? Um, as well as truthfulness to be able to speak prophetic truth to power. Mm. And so that to me is the more liberative way of re reading Revelation than the alternatives. What would this look like for the context of the mission of the church? What's a non-imperialist, a non-empire-based mission look like? And I mean mission perhaps locally, but also even globally. How can we, you know, are we part of the problem? Can we be, part, can we, we be something other than part of the problem? Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, that, that brings us back to Jesus, you know, in the gospel stories. And one of the Oftentimes we we can uh, we think we're so used to worshiping Jesus we forget about the social context uh, within which Jesus lived, which is that he comes from this kind of backwater town, right? That is considered impure ethnically speaking because it was conquered by Rome, and also uh, coming from sort of a, a working class uh, background and family, 
And uh, what, although he was very talented, right, and was very great with interpreting the scriptures, a lot of people didn't think that anything good was going to come from Nazareth, for instance, right? <laughs> yes. uh, so, and if we contrast that also to sort of other narratives of, of God, right, in the ancient world, where God is usually the ideology that props up powerful people and supports the lifestyle of the status quo. But the Christian gospel kind of turns that upside down in a lot of ways and says that, no, God comes from, you know, this this family that was uh, exiled from their hometown. So they have to migrate in order to survive and to escape violence. And then comes back and this person was rejected by his own community, mm-hmm. right, and died a death because he was seen so much as a threat to empire uh, that they they wanted to end him so that he doesn't create a political religious political order that would threaten the powers that be mm-hmm. right so if we think about it that way then one thing that comes to mind is that god's voice comes from places that we least expect them to right mm-hmm. it comes from uh it comes from places that are usually on the margins of our society and so that means that we must stand at the margins of society, not only because we're morally obligated to, you know, as Christians to to meet the needs of those who don't have their everyday needs met mm. or to achieve justice for the poor, but also because that's where God is already at. Right? David Gushy, the great Christian ethicist, calls this participatory grace. Mm. It means that we stand at the margins because God is at the margins trying to dismantle the barriers so that uh, so that we can be one people again right as mm. a human community so if that's the case then mission looks very different mm. than simply just like simply just trying to instill certain dogma or doctrine or, or creeds in people right mm-hmm. it actually begins with then listening listening for the voice of God in the other people. Because that other people might have something to teach us about God that we didn't know before. So allowing the voice of the other to rupture our our sense of complacency, right? Mm. To let the, to let to so it's a receiving attitude. So when we do mission, we're not bringing gold to other people, but rather we're going to people so that we can receive from them and receive their hospitality. And that way, our image of God is revolutionized and is purified of the colonial matrix of power. So it begins with listening, right? Mm. And it begins with standing on the margins and really committing ourselves to uh, to try to find God in the least uh, in the places where we least expect to find God. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, that's cool. One of the things that I was when I and I've already referenced um, Willie James Jennings' book when I was wrestling with some of these big eyes, very close to uh, your, um, you know, your chapter here and some of the ideas that you've worked with, was feeling quite discouraged. Really that what we talk about as racism, what we talk about as colonialism and these kind of mindsets are so inextricably intertwined with so much of everything we encounter in our world today from theology to economics to right. politics to culture to all of these aspects of our lives. And it just, yeah, you know, and I think it 
probably, you know, we shouldn't expect that we could perhaps undo this kind of history, you know, that has taken centuries, you know, 600 years or however we want to measure it to kind of that it has had that all that time to grow and sink its roots deeply and to, you know, make a mess of so many things. Right. Do you have hope that we can actually make progress in this way or is it something that we just have to do because it is right and good but that it may not necessarily change anything uh, in the world? Yeah, is this a fight worth having and is it a fight that we can expect to progress with? Yeah, that's a that's a very great question, and that's one that I wrestle with myself mm. personally. I don't think I have any easy answers for that. Um, oh, come on! So maybe I can. <laughs> I know. I you wish let I me did, down. Right? <laughs> yeah, but, but maybe I can just share with you what sustains me, right? So, and maybe it's helpful for other people. Right? One one of the things that I find very valuable in the Christian tradition uh, is this idea. As I, as I talked about earlier, the participatory grace. Ultimately, the agent that acts in the world that matters is God, right? God is the one who brings history to its own culmination, not you, not me, right? We are not going to fix everything with the things. That, sometimes we fix very little. And sometimes by trying to fix things, we can make things worse if we're not critical about our own uh, efforts to do so, right? This is one of the critiques for the colonial matrix of power. If we move too too fast from the problem to the solution, we may make the same mistakes, right, that we're trying to fix. And so first, one thing to remember is that we are participants, right? So, so I'm not drawing like dichotomy again between God and us and just say, like, so perhaps many Christians might say, well, God will fix everything, so I don't have to do anything. I want to avoid that, right? That is not that is not what good Christian eschatology is about. In fact, a good Christian eschatology is participatory. It means that we are a part of, an active participant of what God is already doing in the world, which is to reconcile the world to God. And so as a participant, though, I don't take. I, I I don't have the ability to take the full responsibility to fix the world. What I can do is to be in whatever part I can. I, I, I am called to do to be a part of that process whereby the world is reconciled to God. Now, so God is the ultimate agent, and I'm merely one participant. My our community hopefully can be one participant. Uh, in that journey towards greater justice and greater wholeness, while mm. also understanding that the, the the story of Revelation is also that there is a conflict, right, between the way that God wishes human beings to be versus the world actually, as it actually is, right, mm. the world as in its own status quo. So yes, it can be very discouraging uh, to 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 feel that we work so hard to try to talk about something, to address something, and to create policies that we think is going to uh, bring some relief to people who are vulnerable, mm. right? Some progress can be made. Right? I don't want to ever deny that. We wouldn't act unless there's some hope that certain things can be changed. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, also recognizing that what we're doing is merely just a piece of the puzzle, 
and then we're responsible for what we're called to do here and now and try not to overwhelm ourselves with the burden of trying to fix the world. Mm. And I think that's what sustains me. And what also gives me hope too is that, you know, uh, to, to just to celebrate the literal victories that we have here and there, right? Mm. And I think that's what, the, you know, taking communion is historically part of what that is about, right? When we come to worship together, when we take communion we're we're celebrating the fact that God is present among us here and now, right? Mm-hmm. Find certain rituals, find spaces where we can feel safe with one another and to just celebrate each other and to connect with each other. Th- those spaces are going to be extremely important for the long-term work of justice. Mm-hmm. There is no successful kind of movement in the history of the world that where people are not, don't have some kind of discipline of keeping faith and keeping hope in order to withstand the discouragement that we all will experience mm. in this very dark world uh, with so much despair and injustice. But at the same time, if we shift our focus a little bit, so two things. First, God is the ultimate agent and we are a participant. Mm. Secondly, find ways in which God is manifested, even if it's small ways, and celebrate that relish that right yeah. maybe that can give us some fuel to sustain the work mm. yeah. i appreciate those thoughts and yeah. really appreciate your chapter uh in the book and the contribution that you've made there in highlighting this kind of you know i think it, it is important to recognize that the the deep-seatedness and entrenched nature of race and racism as issues in our world and that they aren't they aren't something that were invented in 2020 or you know 2013 or 1950 whenever when Rosa Parks sat on a bus and you know so you go all the way back and you know there's centuries of history behind this and I think that's such an important thing to keep in mind it gives us a a real understanding of the depth of it but also yeah, the and the intransigence of it and then calls us to actually work all the harder because of that uh, in that right. space. Um, you've had the opportunity in a couple of spaces and even recently in a conference that you hosted at Loma Lenda to, to host a panel discussion about the book as a larger project. What do you think, you know, reflecting on the book as a larger project, what do you think it contributes what do you hope that it, you know, that the conversations around it that you've been a part of and that you've uh, listened in on, what do you hope that they can contribute to uh, our work as a church, our community conversations, and and how we go from here? Yeah, uh, you know, a lot of in a lot of ways, what I'm hoping for is happening, namely that people are having these important conversations about race and racism. In our communities, which is not always a comfortable conversation, right? So, mm. you know, uh, I, I navigate between uh, church and healthcare uh, communities, and uh, wherever we go, wherever I go, these conversations take on a very distinct flavor, right? But I'm very encouraged by the fact that more and more people are interested and are willing to have these conversations, and I think this book is really a a great example of that happening within our church, that there are so many people right now who are invested in fighting for racial equity in our communities, right? And so 
so that's that's what I was hope would, would hope I uh, hoped would happen, and it's already kind of uh, starting to happen in many different contexts. I guess another then the, the next question is after we have these conversations, then we need to start thinking about as a community what are we actually going to do in order to start addressing racial inequity in our own communities, whether it be because you're part of a healthcare institution that is uh, working within communities that has high concentrations of, you know, poverty, right? Mm. Where a lot of people who are in situations where they don't get access to what they need because of the neighborhood that they live in, which where a lot of people of color are living, right? What are we going to do about that uh, as a community, as an institution, right? If we really want to take this issue seriously. So to start thinking about what are some evidence-based ways that we can start uh, advocating for policies at the local and at the national level that is actually going to make a difference so that it doesn't remain just at the level of having never-ending conversations about race, but it leads to certain actions on our part as a community to actually address that. Mm. Now, I'm starting to see there are some movements within institutions to want to address this. Uh, so I'm very encouraged uh, by that. My, my counsel is that we remain vigilant about whatever solution that we create. Mm. We're not going to just be complacent and satisfied with that, but and always being critical about the assumptions that we're bringing to the table when we create these policies and to advocate for these uh, new norms. Mm, mm. Now, I'm pretty sure that as a doctor of ethics, they don't give you a prescription pad so that you can write prescriptions for people. But if you were (laughs) to write a prescription for a local church as a doctor of ethics and how they could address some of these issues, what would you suggest? Well, as a doctor of ethics, I would say I would completely reject the very idea of prescriptions mm-hmm. for people that I don't know, right? <laughs> that, I think that if, if I were to do that, I would violate my own ethical principles of mm-hmm. the colonial matrix of power. It's not my role to go into a community, tell them what they should do, but listen to them and then maybe facilitate a conversation and then to see who are the people who are excluded in this Mm. community and bring their voice into the conversation. And maybe, hopefully, we can have a solution that honors the dignity of every person in that community. So Mm. I would never want to write a prescription for for any community. No, that's cool. But I think you've given us at least a a direction or a map that we could work from (laughs) in listening and looking out for those who we aren't hearing from and that we aren't listening to. I think that's a a really good place to start. Thank you for talking with us today. Uh, Yishen Ma, again, uh, Professor of Ethics at Loma Linda University. Um, Thank you for your contribution to A House on Fire and um, for your ongoing work in some of these topics as well. I really appreciate that. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you to Adventist Peace Radio and to Adventist Voices for hosting this special podcast series, and we'll be back uh, on the next episode. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move, and the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely.